And now I want to read again from John's Gospel, chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. So when He had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek Me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this love feast we are able to share. We thank You for the love that You have shown us in Christ Jesus. This love is Your glory. And Father, we pray that we would glorify You by loving one another as Jesus has loved us. This we pray in His name. Amen. You may be seated. I hope you have enjoyed this Monday Thursday, this feast we're able to share together, this love feast. Uh, Monday Thursday is all about love. It is a night for sharing love. It's a night for feasting with one another. Uh, and that's why this is called traditionally an agape feast, a love feast. It is a night for reflecting on the uh, new mandate, the mandatum. Uh, that's how Monday 30, Thursday gets its name, the uh, Latin word for commandment, the new mandate, the new command that Jesus has given to us, that we should love one another even as Jesus has loved us. And of course, ultimately, it's a night to reflect on God's own love, the glorious love that God reveals in His Son. See, on this night, on that Thursday night when Jesus gathered in the upper room with His disciples, and then on Friday when Jesus went to the cross to die for sinners, to die for the world, Jesus defined, or really we could say redefined, what love means. Uh, in John 13.34, Jesus says we are to love one another as He has loved us. Now, don't think of this as Jesus' dying wish. This is not like famous last words from Jesus. This is not like, say, a, a father on his deathbed who says to his quarreling children, oh, how I wish you could just get along. No, this is the omnipotent Savior, the God-man, establishing a new pattern of life for His people and commanding them to love in the same way He has loved. And of course, with the understanding that the love He has for each of us empowers us to love one another in this way. He fills us with His own love so that love may overflow to others around us. Jesus says we're to love like this. We're to love as He loves. And this Jesus-like love is to be the mark of His people. This is what marks us out as His disciples. If you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, how do you identify one of your followers? What is it that, that identifies a Christian, a disciple? How do you spot a disciple of Jesus? How do you pick a, a disciple of Jesus out of a crowd? Jesus would say it's not by our dress code or our moral code. It's not primarily by our politics or our private piety, though all those things are certainly important. But there's one thing, one distinguishing mark of the Christian. One distinguishing mark that sets Christ's people apart, and it is this, our Jesus-like love for one another. Jesus doesn't merely say to love one another. That wouldn't be new. That's not a new command. 
Uh, you can go back to the book of Leviticus. And in the law, there's this command. In the law of Moses, love your neighbor as yourself. But now, Jesus says, we're to love one another, not as we love ourselves, but as He has loved us. He's setting a new bar. He's setting a higher standard. Uh, that word as is really the key. That word as and what follows. Because it defines what Jesus means by love. Jesus Himself becomes our definition of love. He's the model. He's the template of the kind of love we should, we should show. Jesus is love. He's God's love incarnate. Jesus speaks and acts in love all the time. He displays ultimate love. It even says in John 13, He loved His disciples to the uttermost. This is the ultimate form of love. And we are to love one another as He has loved us in the same manner. So Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the definition. He provides the pattern and the template for the kind of love we should show. And of course, again, in loving us to the uttermost, He fills us with His love so that love overflows our lives and spills out to others. So when we love one another in this way, we're really loving one another with His love. It's really the love of Jesus flowing between us. But of course, this means if we're going to love one another in the way Jesus commanded, we've got to explore how Jesus has loved us. We've got to understand how He loves us. Jesus, of course, is God. He's God in the flesh. And so when we are commanded to love like Jesus, we're really being commanded to love like God Himself. And of course, that makes sense. Humanity is made in the image of God. We learned that in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. We're made to be like God, to image God, to be creaturely replicas, created copies of God. And one of the chief ways we're to image God is by loving as God loves. We're to image God's love, to mirror God's love in our relationships to one another. We're to imitate the divine love in a creaturely way. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And this is where Jesus Himself comes in. See, Jesus came into the world as the incarnate Son of God to show us what God is like, to reveal God to us, to reveal to us the deepest depths of who God is. So when we look at Jesus, we are peering into the very heart of God. But of course, Jesus not only shows us what true what true. Godhood is like. He also shows us what true manhood is like. He not only reveals godness to us, he also reveals true humanness to us because he is the God-man. But all this starts with God, with understanding God's own love. Jesus is the revelation of God's love. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. We can't see God, but we can see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, we see God. When we look at Jesus, we're seeing what God is really like. In the previous chapter, in John chapter 12, Jesus says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. In the following chapter, in John 14, Jesus says, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. So what is God like? What does it look like when God shows up? 
it looks like Jesus. What you see in Jesus is what you get in God. See, when God shows up, what does He do? He does all the things we see Jesus doing. He, he serves. He forgives. He washes feet. He dies on a cross. Everything Jesus does, God does. And so in all He does, He is showing us God. What does it look like when God shows up, when God comes among us? It looks like the cross. It looks like a bleeding sacrifice with arms outstretched to embrace the world, praying, Father, forgive them. As John 13.31 says, this is the glory of God. See, when a Christian says God, that's what we mean. Jesus defines God for us. When you hear the word God, you should immediately think of Jesus dying on the cross. That's what should pop into your mind. A bleeding sacrifice, suffering and dying for the world. That's how God shows Himself to us. That's how God wants to be known. There's not a lot of atheists in Alabama, uh, but there are a few. Uh, over the course of my uh, adult life, as I've encountered atheists from time to time, I, there's a question I like to ask them. You know, whenever somebody says, I don't believe in God, uh, I always try to pick that apart a little bit and see what exactly it is they're rejecting. And so I always say, well, tell me about this God you don't believe in. You know, I'll say, look, there are millions of possible gods out there uh, in all the different religions of the world. I don't believe in most of them either. So when you say you don't believe in God, tell me what you mean by that. What is this being you're calling God that you're rejecting, that you're disbelieving? What exactly do you mean by God? And, and, and this has always happened whenever I've been able to ask this question. The answer you get uh, whenever the atheist talks about God, he'll say, you know, it's some kind of higher power, you know, some kind of bully in the sky, some kind of higher force who gives all of these rules to keep us from having fun and to make us feel really guilty all the time. And I'll say, hey, you know what? That's a very unlikable figure you've just described you know what, I don't believe in that God either. And just like you, I wouldn't even like that kind of God. Now let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the God revealed in Him. See, what is God like? What does it look like when God shows up? Jesus. It looks like Jesus. He is the invisible God made visible. And when you look at Him, you find a God who quite frankly, is very likable. A God who is magnetic. A God who is attractive. A God that even a skeptic, I think, would have to like, would find compelling. See, I think even the skeptic can be won over when he comes to understand how Jesus reveals God to us. In fact, it's very interesting. You have to ask atheists what they mean by God, and they'll tell you something like what I described, that kind of bully in the sky. But then when you talk about Jesus, they'll usually have some pretty nice things to say about Jesus. They don't think he's God in the flesh the way we do, but they'll have some nice things to say about Jesus. But if you start to unpack God in terms of Jesus, you find that God's actually very likable. I think this is exactly what happened to C.S. Lewis. Lewis was a skeptic. Uh, in fact, he was an atheist. But the more he studied the life and character of Jesus Jesus won him over. Jesus won his heart. He came to find Jesus' love irresistible. 
He concluded that if God is like Jesus, then that's a God I can believe in. That's a God I can not only like, but love. That's a God I can trust and, and, and give myself to. You know, if you think about the life story of Jesus, it really is the ultimate love story. You know, think about the life of Jesus and think about it in terms of how he reveals God to us, how he reveals the love of God for his people. When God shows up in our midst in Jesus, where and how does he do it? He shows up as a baby in a manger. Okay, who, who would not like a baby? Okay, a squirming little baby. He comes in the humblest possible form. And, and he's born in a manger. It's such a humble birth. It's not even fit for a peasant, really, much less the Son of God. How does he live his life once he grows up? In the course of his life, he feeds the hungry. He takes children into his arms and blesses them. He rescues oppressed women. He forgives sinners. When it comes time to enter into the, the city, the, the royal city, the capital city of Jerusalem, he rides in not on a white charger, but on a lowly donkey showing his humility. He gathers with his disciples for the Passover feast in the upper room. And what does he do? He washes their feet. He makes himself their servant, their slave. And of course, ultimately, what does he do? He goes to the cross to bleed for us. When God shows up, what is he like? He's humble. He's a servant. He's servant-hearted. He's sacrificial. When God shows up, he upends all our ideas about God and about glory, and about greatness. He smashes all our assumptions about religion. And ultimately, He wins us over. He wins our hearts. He draws us in with His love. The God we meet in Jesus is a humble God. And we often don't put those words together. Humility and Godhood. It sounds contradictory, and certainly it is a paradox, but it is the truth. How did God live among us? He lived among us as a humble servant. Paul does this too. It's not just here in John 13. It's also Paul, the apostle in Philippians chapter 2, writes a poem or incorporates into his letter to the Philippians a, a pre-existing poem about Jesus as the humble servant God. And so he tells the Philippians, have the same mind in you all that is in your community that was in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to seize or a thing to exploit, but rather poured Himself out taking the form of a servant. This is how the Apostle Paul describes God's life among us. This is how God in the flesh lived. And of course, again, just like in John 13, he's presenting this God in the flesh as a model for us. Philippians 2 and John 13 are a lot alike. They both show us God's humble love and they call on us to imitate this humble love, to have this Christ-like mind of humility and service. Paul has to write to the Philippians this way because the Philippians were prideful. And because they were prideful, they were quarreling. There was a lot of infighting in this church. They don't have the mind of Christ. It's not being reflected in their relationships. And so they need to be reminded of how Christ has lived. How Christ lived His life. Augustine put it this way. He said, God has humbled Himself and yet still 
man is proud. It ought not to be. Christ did not use His equality with God to His own advantage. Rather, He expressed His equality with God precisely by pouring Himself out sacrificially in self-giving love. How did Jesus show off His Godhead? To show us what God is like, He took the form of a servant. Consider that God comes among us as one who serves. And this means true God-likeness is found in humility. It's found in self-giving love. God expresses His Godhood in sacrificial love. And because true Godhood is found in humble service, true manhood is found in humble service as well. This is the essence of what it means to be truly human. When we act pridefully, we're really disfiguring our humanity. We're acting subhuman. We're supposed to image God. If God lives a life of humble service like what we see in Jesus, then we certainly, as His image bearers, must live a life of humble service as well. See, John 13 is such a critical passage in all of this because it really summarizes what the whole ministry of Jesus is about. The words and actions of Jesus here show us why He came. The chapter begins in verse 1 with Jesus telling us that Jesus knows now His hour has come. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, it's called the hour of His glory but we know also it is the hour of His cross. And so John is putting cross and glory together and overlaying them. The hour of His glory is the hour of His cross. And this is because the cross reveals the true glory of God. The glory of love. The glory of God is His self-giving, sacrificial love. And then verses 3-5 through five go on to explain why Jesus will do what He does. And listen to this. I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but this is going to give you the gist of it. Jesus knows the Father has given all things into His hands. That He has come from God and is going back to God. Therefore, He rose from the table, laid aside His garments, took a towel and water, and began to wash His disciples' feet. See, this really summarizes... His mission. When God shows up, what does He do? He makes Himself a slave. That was His mindset. He took the posture of the lowest servant. Jesus reveals His deity in precisely this way by stooping and taking a towel and washing dirty feet. And Jesus does this, John tells us, precisely because He knows He has all power. Because all things have been entrusted to Him. Jesus knows this, therefore, John tells us, He gets up and takes the towel. That implied therefore is so amazing. That that's the logic of it. Because He is Almighty, because all things have been entrusted to Him, that's why He gets up and washes their feet. Because He is God's Son, He serves. Because He knows who He is and where He's going, He washes the feet of His disciples. A teacher is greater than those He teaches. Jesus is Lord. God is greater than His creatures. But God comes among us as one who serves. And think about this. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, washes the feet of these men knowing that every single one of them is going to turn on Him. Before the night is over, they will betray Him. They will deny Him. They will abandon Him. He knows they're going to let Him down but that doesn't stop him. 
I want to ask you a dangerous question. It's a dangerous question, but I think we need to ask it. Have you ever thought about what it must be like to be God? You know, sometimes I think we think uh, about what it would be like to have God-like superpowers, you know, kind of like a superhero, but that's not what I mean. I mean, have you thought about what it must be like to be God, to love the way God loves, to love the unlovely the way God does? Think about the whole story of God's love. Really, the whole Bible is the story of God's love from beginning to end. In the beginning, God loves Adam and Eve. And what do they do with God's love? Do they return God's love? Do they respond in God's love? God gives to Adam and his wife everything they could ever want. And yet, what do they do? They turn against him. They side with the serpent against him. They insult God as if he were stingy rather than generous with his gifts. They reject the love of God and the gifts of God. Later in history, God loves Israel. And God delivers Israel from slavery. And God gives Israel His house and His word and His gifts. And God enters into a covenant with Israel, which means He marries Israel. He makes them His bride. And He will be a husband to them, to His people. But again, what happens? Do they return His love? No, they spurn His love. They go after other gods, other lovers. They commit spiritual adultery. The prophets again and again accuse Israel of this, of, of committing spiritual adultery. What it's like to, what is it like to be God? To love the way God loves? Just read the book of Hosea. To be God is like being married to a serial adulterer. In the book of Hosea, we find that God has the prophet Hosea go and marry a prostitute named Gomer to show Israel what it's like. This is a, a parable of Israel's relationship with God, God's relationship with Israel. Hosea marries a prostitute named Gomer. And it's not long before Gomer leaves home and returns to the brothel. And yet God tells Hosea to go seek her out, to keep loving Gomer, to, to go down to the brothel, and even pay money to buy her back, to bring her home. To pay that price. And that's what Gomer does, because that's what it's like to love the way God loves. It's to love an unfaithful bride with all the hurt and all the shame that comes with that. That's how God loves. And of course, it's the same with the disciples here. Jesus has invested Himself in these disciples. He's shared Himself with them. He's shared His heart with them. He's given Himself to them. And how will they return the favor with unfaithfulness, with abandonment? They don't return His love with love. They reject His love. As soon as it gets to be, as soon as it becomes difficult to be loyal to Jesus, they're out of there. They run away. They scatter. See, what happens here in the upper room in John 13 dramatizes how God loves us. It's really a hands-on parable of divine love. When you peer into the deepest depths of divine life, when you peer into the heart of God, this is what you see. A God who loves even those who don't always love Him back as they should. A God who suffers for others. A God who serves others. This is who God is. You know, to see God, you can't just look up to the heavens. You know, we certainly see God in the heavens above us, but we have to look down below us because God has made Himself our servant. He is a God who has lowered Himself. In John 13, what do we see? We see God on His knees with a towel getting dirty in order to make us clean. 
we see a God in human form who humbles Himself in order to exalt us. A God who washes our feet. Of course, washing the very feet that figuratively speaking will walk all over Him later that very night. Washing those feet with hands that the next day will be pinned to a Roman cross with nails. Those very hands that we pin to the cross the next day are washing the feet of a bunch of failures who are going to scatter as soon as it gets tough. When Jesus washes the disciples' feet, He's essentially saying to them, look, your dirt is my dirt. All your debts, I'm making those debts mine. All your problems, I'm making them mine. All your burdens, they're now my burdens. I will love you to hell and back if that's what it takes to make you mine forever and to make you clean. See, in stooping to wash their feet, He enters into suffering service on our behalf. That's what He's done for us. That's how He loves us. And that love is now our benchmark. That is the measuring rod, the standard by which our love is to be evaluated. This kind of love is what we should show to one another in all our relationships with each other. So in closing, I ask you this. What does it mean to love as God loves? What does it mean to love the way Jesus loves? It means you have to do all these things. You have to humble yourself. You have to stoop to serve. Sometimes it's going to mean doing jobs that no one else wants to do. God gets His hands dirty. God does the dirty work. Sometimes we've got to do the dirty work as well to love the way God loves. It means making the problems that other people have caused and the messes that other people have made your own problems and your own messes. It means loving even when there doesn't seem to be love returned. Sometimes uh, you know, if we do some small act of service towards somebody, we'll get angered if it goes unnoticed or if we don't get the thanks and praise we think we deserve. But that's not how God loves. God loves even when there's not a return. God's love is free. It's generous. It's long-suffering. God's love covers a multitude of sins. God keeps on loving even when that love is not reciprocated. We tend to want to love only those who are lovely. We tend to want to love only when it's easy and convenient to love. Those who can love us back. Those who are worthy of our love. But that's not how God has loved us. God has loved us in our unworthiness. God loves us even in our unloveliest moments. God has pursued us even when we have been running away from Him. God loves us even when we hurt Him. He loves us even when it's costly. God's love is a love that bleeds for the Beloved. Love means bleeding for others. It means cleaning up the messes of others. It means pursuing others. It means meeting the needs of others as if they were your own. Making the needs of others your own. You know, I wash my feet every day. And I don't think twice about it. I I take care of myself that way. I'm sure you do too. To love like God loves. To love as Jesus has loved means washing one another's feet. Caring for others the same way you care for for yourself even more so at times. Cleaning up one another's dirt. Bearing one another's burdens. This is the kind of love. It's a love that hurts. 
You cannot bear others' burdens without feeling the weight of those burdens. You cannot love in this way without paying a price. There's a cost. But this is a love that reveals glory. Because when we love one another as Jesus has loved us, we reveal God and we reveal the love of God to the world, which means we reveal the glory of God to all who see us. Love like Jesus loves. Live as Jesus has lived. Know that Jesus has loved you in this way. Know that Jesus has loved you in this way and He fills you with His love that you might love others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that like Your Son, we know where we have come from and we know where we are going. And so help us to love even as He has loved. This we pray in His name. Amen.